Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. Well, as Chuck already mentioned, this morning we're actually going to take communion, even though, you know, we normally take communion on the first Sunday of every month, because that's kind of what the text we're going to be looking at together. However, I just feel like there are some special people in our church family who deserve to take communion before the rest of us take communion. And so if you have a PhD, would you just raise your hand? I'm going to go ahead and personally deliver you communion. We have any PA? We got one back here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course, I'm not actually only going to give communion to those who have PhDs. That's just an illustration for us to kind of immerse ourselves in the text that we're going to be looking at together as we continue our series as a church in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, a series we've called A Better Way. And the reason we called it this is because in this letter, Paul is showing this church and us still today a better way to live as God's people in this world. Now, last week, if you were with us, we entered into a new section in this letter that really will bring us all the way through chapter 14. And this whole section, chapter 11 all the way through 14, really centers on the idea of what it should look like when the church gathers together to worship. What should be our attitudes? What should be our postures? What are the practices that we should put in place when we gather here at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning? And really, as Jeff noted last week, the key question we should be asking ourselves throughout this whole section, if you're following on your notes, is how do we glorify God when we gather to worship? How do we glorify God when we gather to worship? You see, the problem is in Corinth, as Jeff noted last week in an unbelievably well-done message on a very difficult subject, if you haven't listened to it yet, I encourage you to go back to the website and do that. But he reminded us that the church of Corinth, the people were more interested in glorifying themselves than they were in glorifying God. And this shows up in a number of ways in these chapters that we're going to be looking at. And the way we'll look at this morning is how it shows up in the way they celebrated the Lord's Supper together or communion together. Communion, of course, was instituted by Jesus on the night he was betrayed. He had a meal with his disciples, and he said, For now on, I want you to remember, participate in this, and remember me. Now, what exactly is it that we're supposed to be remembering when we take communion? That's a great question, and that's where Paul's going to go in this text. But let me just let you behind the curtain a little bit, give you a little bit of a hint here. Whenever I prepare to speak a message, one of the things I always do is I look for any words that might be repeated in the text. This is a great thing for you to do in your personal Bible studies as well, because it's going to really show, oh, this is what this is really about. And there's a word that's repeated five times in the text we're going to be looking at together this morning. It's the Greek word, synerchomai. Do you want to just say that out loud together? You want ready? Synerchomai. Synerchomai just means to bring together, to connect together, to come together, or to unite together. And so right away, we will we'll understand when we're talking about the Lord's Supper or communion, we're talking about something that is meant to unite. The sad irony in the church of Corinth and really in the church with a capital C still today, is that communion has often become a main source of division instead of a source of uniting. You got a sense of it in the introduction there uh, that I had. This is meant to unite the church, and it's actually dividing them. And so in this passage, Paul is going to rebuke the Corinthians because they're missing it. 
They're missing the four things that is suppo- they're supposed to remember that is united when we take communion. And that's really what we're going to do together this morning. I want to look at four ways that we remember how communion unites us to something. We're going to talk about that. And then we're actually going to get a chance to take communion together as a church. And we're going to do it in a little different way, but I will explain that when we get there. For now, I will just encourage you to grab a Bible. If you brought your own with you, great. If you don't have your own, we have some available in the seat underneath you there. And you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. And you can find that on page 930 of those black Bibles. I always like to say, too, if you don't have your own Bible, take that home with you as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. I'm going to do something different. I'm actually going to read the whole text. So you're going to have the Bible, we're going to read it, and then I'm going to come back. And like I said, let's talk about the four things Paul wants us to remember when we take communion. Before we hear God's word, though, let's bow our heads and pray and ask him to speak to us. Oh, Lord, I don't know how you must feel to have this thing that is meant to unite be one of the primary sources of division in the church, both in the church in Corinth, but really in the church with a capital C still today. And so our prayer as the people of Cherry Hills, as your family that you've created here, that you're sustaining here, we pray that you would unite us today in this message, not for our glory, not for the name of Cherry Hills, but for your glory, for the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody agreed and said. So here we go, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17, going all the way through 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, whether you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions, directions. Wow, there's a lot going on here. I think you'd agree. But out of that, we're going to talk about four things that Paul wants us to remember. God wants us to remember when we take communion. So let's go. Let's do that. The first thing to remember when we take communion 
is that communion unites the past to the present. Communion unites the past to the present. What do I mean? Well, as Paul reminds the Corinthians in verse 23, as on your notes there, let's read it out loud together. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. And he goes on. So whenever we observe the Lord's Supper, one of the things we're doing is we're not just talking about the present. We're talking about an actual night that occurred in actual history. We call it the Last Supper. It's the supper when Jesus gathered around a table with his closest friends and he shared a meal with him. Now, for some of you Bible students, what was this actual night in history called? It was called the Passover night. They were celebrating the Passover meal together. What is the Passover meal? The Passover meal was the meal that every Jewish family was required to observe in order to remember God's great liberation as they were slaves in Egypt. Here's what happened at Passover. If you remember the story, some of you may remember. The the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and God said, I'm going to come and deliver you. And he starts doing that by sending these plagues. And we get to the 10th plague, and God says, I'm going to send an angel of death. But for each of you who is willing to sacrifice a lamb, and then take that blood of a lamb as a substitute, and paint it over your doorways, the angel will pass over your house. And that's exactly what happens on the night of their deliverance. The angel of the Lord comes and passes over their house, and they're allowed to go free. They are given their escape and their liberation. This is such a monumental event that in Exodus 12, 14, Moses gives these instructions. This is a day to remember. Each year from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. Now read this last line. It says, this is the law for all time. And that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples. It's Passover night. And he's celebrating the Passover with them. But... He actually is going to make some changes to the Passover, which is a pretty audacious thing to do when you consider Moses just said, this shall never be changed. But Jesus changed it. And the first change he made is when he starts talking about the bread. You see, there would have been a person who would have led the Passover meal, and that would have been Jesus. And normally, that person would have said this when we would eat the bread together celebrating Passover. They would say, this is the bread of our affliction which we ate in the wilderness. But Jesus takes that bread and he says, this is my body. This is the bread of my affliction, which is broken for you. Then he takes the cup, and at Passover there are actually four cups that they would have taken. Most believe this was the third cup called the cup of redemption, where they remember the sacrifice of that lamb as their substitute for their life. And Jesus says one of the most amazing things ever. He says, this cup, is my blood, which is shed for you. Why is he saying that? Well, he's saying what the whole Old Testament says, which is the blood of lambs can never permanently remove the sins of people. Isaiah says in this famous place in Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2,000 years before Jesus, they're talking about Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus says, that's me. 
I am the one on whom the iniquity of sin has been laid upon. I am the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Everything in the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, all the priests, all the kings, all the prophets, all the Passover meals, all of it is pointing to me. And so what do we remember when we celebrate communion? We remember that Jesus' death is the climactic event toward which all of God's redemptive story has been pointing from the very beginning. And in his death, we are not just rescued temporarily like the, Egypt, like the Jews were. No, he deals with sin and death itself. So when you take the bread and the cup here in a few moments, one of the things I'd like you to remember is that you are uniting yourself to a bigger story. The story of God's redemptive redemptive work that culminates in Jesus Christ. Our story as present-day Christians is rooted in actual history. Number one. Number two. Second thing to remember when we take communion is that it unites our life to Christ's life. It unites our life to Christ's life. I mean, think about how remarkable this is. When Jesus takes bread and juice and then says, this is my body, this is my blood, what does he do? He puts it in their hands. It's a physical reminder of what's actually taking place here. He's exchanging his life for our life. He is making himself accessible to him. He's giving himself to us. He's saying, I want to unite myself to you once again. So yes, Jesus does something historically significant on this night, but don't miss the point of communion, that he did it to have union with you. Communion with you. Communion is the place where we remember that Jesus gave his life for my life so that now I can have intimate, personal relationship with God. When Jesus says, I'm going to establish a new covenant in my blood, he's saying, I am going to do what the Old Testament law never could do for you. I am going to open the way for you once again to be restored into the ideal relationship that was intended from creation. I like that word, restore. I've been reading some books about an art restorer. It's amazing what they do. Sometimes they are not even great painters, but they can take these paintings that have been ruined and destroyed and turn them into something beautiful. Here's an example of an art restorer's work. I'd say that's pretty incredible, but not as incredible as our Savior restoring what has been destroyed by sin, which is what we remember when we take communion, that we are exchanging our old life that looks like that for a new life that looks like that. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, if you know him, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Now, how does that happen? We call that the great exchange He's given his life for your life. But how does that happen? Well, Paul answers that four verses later in verse 21. Read it out loud with me on your notes there. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when you take communion this morning, you're remembering that apart from his broken body, apart from his spilled blood, you'd still be lost in your old way of life. But, In his marvelous grace, he has restored what has been broken in us. He has given us a new life 
So yes, communion is historical. It's historical grace. It connects the story of scripture, but it's also personal grace. It was an actual event that happened on a cross, but it has impact still on how you and I live today. That's why if Paul says in verse 27 and following in those strange verses that we should not take communion in an unworthy manner. Notice he doesn't say unworthy individuals shouldn't take communion, otherwise none of us would ever take communion. He says don't take it in an unworthy manner. In other words, he's pointing to some actions that might disqualify us from taking communion. What are those actions? Well, we're going to look at that in this very next section. Number three, the third thing we should remember when we take communion is that it unites individuals to a community. Communion unites individuals to a community. It's not just about you and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus. And this is what is so angering to Paul. In verse 18, he says, there's these divisions that are going on in this church. And if you've been with us in this series, there's some tremendous divisions. Cliques, backbiting, pride, arguments, strife. It's awful. And what did it mean for the Lord's Supper? Well, back in the early church, the Lord's Supper was actually celebrated together with a full meal. So people, kind of like a potluck today, they would bring food to this meal, and that would be all a part of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's called a love feast. Aren't you glad we don't call it a love feast anymore? And so the problem in Corinth is there's no love involved at all. In fact, we see the problem in verse 21 there. Let's read that out loud together. It says, When you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Now, you're not going to believe what's happening here. So in this church in Corinth, just like in any church, there were some wealthier members of the church, some poorer members of the church. There were probably some slaves in this church. And so when they would gather together to worship, like I said, they were supposed to all bring some food. But obviously, the wealthier members of the church were probably able to provide more of the food than the poorer members of the church. It would be a way for them to show love to their brothers and sisters in Christ, but they've turned this into a travesty of love instead. You see, the wealthy members of the church would gather together before the poor people would get off work, and they would end up eating all of the food, leaving none of it left for the others. <laughs> they ate and drank in their cliques, and the food was gone before the poor people could even get there. Paul found these party divisions so disgraceful, we have some of the harshest things said to any church anywhere in the New Testament here. He says in verse 20, you call this the Lord's Supper? It's not the Lord's Supper. Then down in verse 29, he says, if you eat and drink the cup of the Lord like this, you're bringing judgment upon yourself. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, who's the body of the Lord? Now, the church, us, without remembering that you're part of that community, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. What's he so upset about? He's upset because they're missing the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel says that I am a sinner saved by grace, not by works. I have been saved by what Jesus has done for me, not by what I do for Jesus. And if that is true, that levels people. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. That means your performance doesn't matter, your pedigree doesn't matter, your race doesn't matter, your finances don't matter, your education level doesn't matter. The gospel in Galatians 3.28 says... 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But we're so good as human beings at causing division and creating division. These things that no longer matter become the things that matter for us. But if you understand the gospel, you understand there can no longer be divisions because of social class or race or because some people have PhDs and some people don't. D.A. Carson put it this way. I put this on the screen because I want you to read this. It's, It's just so good. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That'd be a great place for an amen. Paul says, if you're having these kinds of divisions, then you're a walking contradiction of what the gospel is all about because the gospel is about grace, undeserved favor, the grace that is meant to take away our pride, the grace that is meant to take away our divisions, the grace of God that levels all people. Then he says, and this is no small aside, because you've done this, some of you have gotten sick and weak and fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for dying. Like, whoa, what's he talking about here? I mean, we know from Scripture that when you give yourself to Christ, all punishment for your sin, past, present, and future, has fallen on him. He is the substitute. He is the lamb. You're no longer punished for your sins. However, Scripture also says that if I choose to continue to walk in disobedience, God may send some sort of a warning my way. He may send some sort of a hardship into my path in order to get my attention. If you're a parent, this is what you do as well. You say, my child is continuing to walk down this path of disobedience. There's going to be consequences to that. Now, we might read this and go, gosh, is this a vengeful, angry God? No, I prefer to think of him as a loving, gracious father who says, I need to wake this person up spiritually because I love him and her so much. I need to wake this church up spiritually because I want the best for them. This is a heart of a father who wants to bring his children to repentance and restoration. Now, what does this mean for us today? Does it mean if you have a cold right now that that's God putting, trying to get your attention? I'm gonna go ahead and say no. What it does mean, though, is if there's somebody who you're not speaking to because you're mad at them, if you're holding a grudge against somebody because you're mad at them, if you're letting bitterness control your life, you're hoping bad things happen to somebody, it means you may believe that you're a sinner saved by grace, but you're not living it. You see, there's no way that we, as Christ followers, can hold a grudge of bitterness against another person when we recognize that God has given us grace. What we don't deserve, and if he didn't, I'd be toast. We now pass on that same grace to one another. Yes, communion is about remembering the grace he has given to you as an individual, but it's also a communal grace. We remember the grace that he has given to us as his body, his church. So, If you're here this morning and you know you have a relationship that's fueled by pride and bitterness and anger, 
Does that mean you shouldn't eat the bread and drink the cup? I would say it depends. It depends on whether or not you're willing to make a commitment to reconcile that relationship. Ask God's forgiveness. Ask him to take away your bitterness and your rage. If you say, I'm not going to do that. I'm holding on to this bitterness for as long as I can, this grudge, this anger. Then Paul would say, don't take it. Jesus would say the same to you in Matthew 5, 24. He says, if you're going to offer your gift at the altar and there you remember a brother or sister that you have something against, leave your gift at the altar and go and make things right with them. Paul's calling us to look around. Look around, who am I worshiping with? Jesus died so that we could become whole. If there are ways in which our community is backbiting, gossiping, slandering, arguing, encouraging social and racial and economic division, then we take a hard look at ourselves and we offer grace. Can you imagine what it would look like if a church did that? I wanna be that church, do you? Finally, when we take the Lord's Supper, we should remember that it unites the present to the future. It unites the present to the future. What do I mean? Read verse 26 on your notes out loud there. It says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming again. You can see that in all scripture. Jesus will return. He will take up his church. There will be a victory. And what is he going to bring when he comes? Another supper. Another table. It's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we can read about it in the very last book of the Bible in Revelation. We read Revelation 19.9. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Then in the very last chapter of scripture, we see, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Does that sound good? He's bringing that. And he's going to invite us to a table where we're going to celebrate a meal with him. Why? Because pain is gone. Crying is gone. Tears are gone. And best of all, division is gone. The greatest longing of your heart, whatever it may be, will be completely satisfied. You'll be full. No more emptiness. There's a supper. The supper. And so I'll just ask you, what's this that we're about to do together? It's the hors d'oeuvres. It's just the hors d'oeuvres of what awaits us when the king returns and takes up his victory. So when you take communion this morning, I want you to remember that the Lord is whispering to you, I am unconditionally committed to getting you from here to there, no matter how hard here is right now. It's been about two years since I've used a Lord of the Rings illustration, so I feel like I'm due. That'd be another great place for an amen, right? <laughs> in Lord of the Rings, there's a character by the name of Pippin, and he is the main character's, one of his friends. And he's uh, in a city that is being besieged by one of the, the bad armies, and they're coming. 
and he's fearful that he's going to lose his life. But at the last moment, Pippin hears some horns ringing off in the distance. And for you Lord of the Rings nerds like me, they're the horns of Rohan. And sure enough, just when he thinks all hope is lost, just when the city is besieged, the armies of Rohan come riding into the rescue. Now make no mistake, many of them die, but they break the siege and they save the people inside of the city, including Pippin. Now we're told in the book, Lord of the Rings, this isn't in the movie, that for the rest of his life, Pippin could not hear a horn off in the distance without breaking into tears. Why? Because the horns were a physical and audible reminder of his salvation. When he heard the horns blaring, he relived his salvation. It connected him to the past. He remembered the sacrifices of the people who died for him. No matter how bitter and angry he was, he couldn't stay bitter and angry anymore because he heard the horn. And it reminded him that every single day of the rest of his life was a gift of grace. Communion is our horn. Communion is our horn. When we take communion, it reminds us there is future grace. It's the horn that reminds us one day, no matter how besieged we feel right now, how persecuted, how under it you are. And I know some of you in this room. I know you're going through it. I know life is hard. I'd say for you, communion is the horn that the king is coming again and he will bring you to his table in victory. Let me just close this morning before we take communion and say it's no mistake that Jesus chose a meal at a table as the primary way for us to remember him. I mean, a table. Think of your tables. A table is a place of community. It's a place of fellowship. It's a place where hospitality is extended and meaningful conversation is experienced. And the communion table, it's the place where we remember that we have been united brought together, connected together to God and to one another, both past, present, and future. And so, as we're about to take communion, here's the question for us to consider. Will I remember that I'm united to God and others at his table? That's what communion is all about. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.